You're listening to a Policing TV podcast, Talking Crime with Danny Shaw. Welcome to Policing TV in this edition of Talking Crime with me, Danny Shaw. And I'm very pleased to say that on this edition, I'm joined by Constable Steve Hartshorn. He is the new chair of the Police Federation of England and Wales. Uh, He's made a speech at the Police Federation Conference in Manchester with Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, looking on. Steve, thank you very much for joining us on Policing TV. If I can ask you, first of all, pay was the number one issue that was discussed at the session with the Home Secretary. It was the key concern of police officers in the audience and, I imagine, many police officers up and down the country. Why is it such a major issue for the Police Federation? I mean, it's really simple. We've got a cost of living crisis facing not only police officers, but everybody in the country. In real terms, police officers are 18 to 20% behind where they need to be or should be. And with the inflation going up, police officers need a, a, a real pay rise now that covers their, their outgoing costs. They need to live. They're like everybody else. And it's also to recognise the risk they, they undertake in protection of the public. No one else does that. So for me, it's really important that the Home Secretary... Chancellor and the Prime Minister and the wider government listen to what we're saying and act on it now. In terms of police officer pay, I think there was a a figure given um, during the session that a new police recruit would start on average around £22,000 10 years ago. Now it's about £24,000. An MP's salary, however, has gone from around £64,000 to £84,000 in the same period of time. Now, there may be some historical reasons Uh, why MPs perhaps needed a pay boost. But is that a meaningful comparison, do you think, in your view? I do, if I'm honest. I think it's a fair reflection that we have to treat people properly and proportionately, and it would be nice if everybody in public sector had the similar pay rises. But when you compare the police officer pay to government pay, that seems disproportionate. I know there are issues historically around um, benefits and, and claims that they could have in addition to that job. However, if what you hear at times some of those things are still taking place, they're still making additional claims. So the question I'd say, has it stopped those things taking place and does the pay need to be that high for what they do? Ideally, I would like police officers to get a proper pay rise that is commensurate with everything they do themselves. On the other hand, there isn't a problem in recruiting police officers. Um, you know, we are, there's about 13,500 uh, towards the 20,000 uplift. We hear about thousands of applicants who want to join the police. So it's not as though it appears that the low pay or the comparative low pay that you're concerned about is putting off people joining. I think when you take this figure of 20,000 that the government said they want to uplift, that's only to replace the 20,000 that we lost. So in real terms, we've heard 13,573, I think was the figure. You then take into account over the 18 months, two years, this programme's been in effect, we've probably lost three, four, five thousand. So in terms of the uplift, it isn't actually sitting at that. We're still losing police officers on a regular basis. For me, you need to go beyond 20,000, make it 40,000, 50,000 to actually recruit the 20,000 that we lost because of government cuts. But just coming back to to pay, my central point is that police are recruiting very quickly. You don't hear chief constables, certainly over the past couple of years, complaining that they can't get people in through the door. The problem actually has been perhaps getting you know getting people up and ready quickly enough um, the problem perhaps is a, is an inexperienced workforce so that the pay doesn't seem to be a deterrent 
I think when you get, especially younger in service people joining the police officers, um, the pay seems quite good. But then when they start to look to move on, maybe move to different parts of the country, and then they see that salary not increasing as, as quick as it should, that's when the issues start to come in. They join the job, they don't quite often realise your shift work, they have young families. Um, and then it's also trying to bring in someone that has an existing family that says, come in at this level of pay, and you very quickly go through that pay progression standards. But it takes time to do that. And then suddenly when you realise, coupled with the cost of living crisis, that they can't afford to remain as a police officer. So as they're coming in, they're going out. And it sounds good to say, yes, we are recruiting, so the pay must be okay. But the anecdotal stories I'm hearing and accounts from my colleagues, my federation members, is that they're coming in, but then when they realise what that pay actually is, they're leaving to go back to their old jobs, which were paying significantly more. What, what other evidence are you hearing about the hardship um, that, that, that your, some of your members are, are, are suffering? I mean, we, we heard uh, an account from one detective in North Wales uh, who said that you know, she's paid less than a supermarket worker could earn, that she's been advised by an accountant that she should leave, work part-time, and then claim benefits, and she'd be earning more. Um, is, is that what you're picking up from other people? It is. I've heard from some of my, uh, my colleagues, the chairs and secretaries across the country, and they've got similar stories of offers coming to them saying, look, I just cannot afford to live. I'm going to food banks. I can't afford to take the car to drive to work. Then potentially these officers are becoming subject to misconduct investigations. If you can't go to work, you don't get paid. And it's a vicious cycle. Things have got to change quite quickly because you haven't got police service out there protecting the public. No one else can. Let's just talk about the mechanism for determining pay for a minute without, without it getting too technical. But there is an independent pay review body, right? Yes. That sets the pay um, that the government follows. Is that right? Is that how it works? Yeah. T- tell me how you see the, the pay mechanism working for police officers. As I understand that, it's the government that set the remit for the pay remuneration review body. So they set the parameters. They say you can, you can set the pay within this limit or you can't go above this limit. Is that essentially what the government's doing? That's broadly how I understand it. So then we take all the evidence we have from our member surveys, we provide to the government and we go, this is what we believe we should be asking for and what we're worth. We then give that to the PRRB but it appears the disconnect is that the government can ignore that because they've gone, here's our remit. If we were to recommend 3.5%, the government go, no, we kept at 2%, so what's the point in being in the PRRB? If we're not going to be listened to, understand the needs of the public sector purse, absolutely. However, as I've said previously, you know, in 10 years, we are 20% behind in a real terms pay cut. That's not acceptable. The Home Secretary was saying that you basically walked away from the negotiations or your predecessors walked away from the negotiating table. Is that correct? It was a decision taken by the National Council last year and after lots of discussion, because we weren't being listened to, the PRRB as a process is good because it listens and understands and indeed they praise the quality of our submission, so I'm told in the past, and like it. The disconnect has happened when they put their recommendations forward and as I said in my speech, it's a bit like marking your own homework. The government can look at it, tear it up, and take a notice of it. So what is the point for us to be involved in the pay process where we know we're not going to listen to? It costs time, money, and effort to do these submissions. We can best direct that in other places to see where else we can achieve benefits for our colleagues. So are you going to work with the Home Secretary? She's sort of said, let's work together to sort this problem out. Are you going to work with, with Priti Patel on this? Of course, I have to try. I want to work. For me, I'm asking for a reset with government. I need to engage with the Home Office, the Home Secretary, the Policing Minister. I work with my colleagues on the National Council so that 
if there is a way that something can happen that perhaps changes the remit letter, because that's what we want really, is for that to change, so that we can go back to the table to realise that we will be listened to, and that if the PRRB make a recommendation, it will be honoured, that is a good starting point. Otherwise, there is little point in us going forward to sit at the table, to be told time and time again that we hear what you say, but not this time. That's not right. Now, Steve, um, it's, it's only a few weeks into your office, really. As, as, as we've said, this is your first conference as chair. Tell us a little bit about Steve Hartshorn. Tell us about your background in policing. I think you worked as a special constable before you joined full time. I, I did. I think it was either late 93 or early 94. Um, I joined the Metropolitan Police as a special constable. I was told at that time that was the only way into policing, become a special or go around the world on a trip. I couldn't afford a around the world trip. So I then joined, became a special, and it was about 18 months, had a great time, which kind of confirmed why I wanted to become a police officer. So I then went to Hendon um, for a second time then in 1995, and I've never looked back. It's been a fantastic career. Um, Ten years on Barking and Dagenham, East London. It was like the one that time forgot in terms of funding. It always seemed to be that we were the very last people to get any kind of new kit, equipment, or computers. I remember landing there, and the very first day there was a, a standalone computer on a table and that was it for maybe 50 60 officers and that was all we had i had to learn to type on a typewriter for my statements that's another story completely um i then decided 10 years there i then um i'd always had an interest in firearms so i decided i wanted to apply for the armed response vehicles and um 2005 I was successful moved over there went into the armed response vehicles and again had an amazing career it's a different level of policing a different level of crime good teamwork, good solid ethos of preparing properly, do the job, review what you do, and then do it all again. Um, Really good, 13 fantastic years there. And during that time, I then decided I needed to look to do other things, partly because of of what happens to police officers when they become investigated, and that's what led me to becoming a federation rep. Because obviously when things happen, um, not only do they get legal support, they get federation support as well. And that just interested me more to see what we do in terms of welfare, provision, advice and support. And again, um, I was voted in as a Fed Rep in 2008 and the rest is history. I'm here today as the National Chair. So you've been, you've been a Fed Rep for quite a long period of time. Yes. And were you representing firearms officers who were accused of misconduct or who were caught up in incidents or potentially shot someone? Was that part of your role? It was. It was everything. It was a starting off with the simple cases of allegations of incivility, assault while people are being detained and arrested, through the whole spectrum, to police-involved shootings, to PIPs, as we call them, the potent procedures, and everything in between. All the, the issues that officers would at times call themselves, be it on duty or off duty, some of the things that they do when they're dealing with the public unintentionally. Police officers make mistakes and they deserve protection. And it's my job and my colleague's job to make sure that the processes follow so it's fair, open, transparent, and there isn't an abuse of the process which sadly there are at times because people come with preconceived ideas. And it's just about redressing the balance to say, look, let's have a listen to what people have to say. There are two sides to every story. And of course, the great benefit we've had in my time is that on the armed response vehicles, we were the first fully armed unit to have body-worn video. So we trialled it, we proved it successful. That itself has, I believe, provided confidence in what police officers do. And it's just shown to the members of the public that it's not always as it seems at times. We get the social media side. When you see what police officers deal with on a daily basis, it gives a real insight, and that's been probably one of the biggest helps we've had, certainly as Fed reps and protection of our colleagues. 
Do you think the balance um, has been right in some of the investigations that you've been been involved in in terms of helping your colleagues with the, the scrutiny? Do you think the balance is right there or do you think that sometimes, because I know the Federation has fought very hard against this, that sometimes they feel, you know, a colleague perhaps has made a mistake, um, misjudgment or something like that, but they're sort of put through the ringer for years and years. For me, it's all about timeliness. It's about making sure that investigations are done properly with trained, accredited investigators that understand what those police officers are going through. For me, I've had interviews where I've had someone doing the interview that doesn't know anything about firearms, use of force, or even misconduct regulations. So they ask questions that aren't relevant. They ask things that only other people would know. And they understand the desire to dig around to find out what's happening. But you only get that quality by trained professionals that know what they're doing. Every officer expects to be investigated when a complaint comes in, and we've got no issue with answering good, decent questions to make sure we get to the truth of the matter. And if a colleague has made mistakes, fine, but let's treat them as mistakes. If I go back to when I first started, we had one set of regulations, and it should have been the Taylor reforms. They were never adopted properly. That was all about learning and giving officers a chance to reflect on what they'd done to make amends. That never happened. In all the time that the Taylor recommendation were in force, I never had one performance process or a learning outcome that you could go, that's a general reflection of Taylor. We now look to the new regulations where reflective practice is supposed to be the normal for most things. That's taking place, but again, it's not been fully embraced, and it needs to, because we can't take everybody that makes mistakes, otherwise police officers will just default to perhaps doing the bare minimum at times because they don't want to get into trouble. That's not who cops are. They join this job for one reason, it's to help people. They must be empowered to do it properly and understand that if they make genuine mistakes, they'll be... They'll be spoken to, they'll be educated, and that was why I talked about protected learning time today, because if you educate people, they won't make mistakes again. Give them time to grow and understand that if they have made a mistake, how they've made the mistake, and hopefully they won't make it again. So your time as firearms officer and as, as a, a federation rep, um, obviously hugely rewarding for you, but you've gone for the, the national position as, as chair. Why, why have you put yourself forward for that? Because it's a really high-profile position. There's a lot of scrutiny. There's going to be a lot of media requests to do interviews and so on. It's, it's a different level to what you've been doing. Great question. Um, for me, I like a challenge. And I joined the National Board in 2018, and I was given some really good portfolios, firearms, taser, the operational policing lead for lots of the, the uniform response roles and the cause that we do. And I sat there and I watched how others did their job and I thought, you know what, I think I can do this. I'd like to give it a try. And I talked it through with colleagues and said, well, why don't you go for it? And for me, it was like an apprenticeship. I'd done the time. I put the effort in. I've never been afraid of work. I like a busy workload because it keeps me involved. I had to relearn things that I've perhaps forgotten about when I was a uniform officer on, on borough, on division many years ago. And then I saw the things that other chairs do, how the organisation works. And for me, it was... I believe I can do things differently and in a better way and I've got to bring my own style and the way that I converse with people and I'd like to think it's been borne out because some of the feedback I've had from colleagues is if you stick to who you are, speak as you do, that should engender trust and confidence in what we're doing and again it's just about honest simple conversation, let's see where it takes us and give me a chance because you know what, it could work. There's a lot of politics in the Police Federation historically, you'll be aware of that. It's always been a political organisation with lots of federations, with some of their own practices and ways of doing it. Some people are suspicious of the Met Police Federation, which is obviously the largest 
Federation. How are you going to deal with all that? Again, it's kind of, as I said, it's been about open, transparent and honest. People ask a question, I give them an answer as best that I can. Um, believe it or not, I didn't have a massive knowledge of the PFEW until I became national board member. I was a, a very busy officer that was dealing in armed response vehicles and a federation rep. I was aware of some of the politics at play, obviously doing the job now. There are huge politics in dealing with all the chairs, all the secretaries, the chief constables, wider government. It's not just one set of politics. I've got to learn the different ways that we move, negotiate, talk, consult. I will make decisions that some people won't like. I fully accept that, but there'll always be a good reason as to why I've made that decision. And I hope people will understand that and have the time to ask me and go, why did you think that? And if I tell them, generally they can go, yeah, I think I understand that and get it. So it's trying, really. It's um, No one said it would be easy. It's not. The workload is incredibly... It's busy, it's uphill, I'm learning every single day, having to get used to social media, things like this. Um, I'm not a natural limelight person, I prefer to do the detail and work towards something, come out, say what I have to say and then carry on with the work that I do. Um, but I'm learning, again for me, it's about having the opportunity to speak to people like yourself Danny, to get over the message that we've got to say look, the Police Federation does an amazing job, we have some fantastic members up and down the country that work so hard day in day out to protect the public give us a chance, let us help restore confidence in policing, and I think people will be pleasantly surprised. So we talked about pay, that's clearly a, a massive priority. What are your other priorities as Chair of the Police Federation? The quickest one that springs to mind is Operation Hampshire, and that deals with a, a process that when officers are assaulted on duty, historically there was never anything really in place, surprisingly, that gave a, a process that took them from, you've been assaulted, here's how we're going to deal with you, all the way through to the statement, the investigation, taking it to court, dealing with the magistrates, court, the Crown Court, and beyond. So um, a colleague of mine, Dave Brewster, who's now leading for Oscar Kilo, um, Up, Up Hampshire was built on some great work done by Andy Marsh, who started in Hampshire, hence the Up Hampshire name. Dave's taken that to a new level. He's engaged with the CPS, with the magistrates, the Crown Courts, to make sure certain things are done so that body-worn video is looked at. And again, it's about helping officers provide good, credible evidence with the use of body-worn video, witness accounts to say, if you are assaulted on duty, that is unacceptable. We need to change the mindset so that no one expects a cop to be assaulted on duty. Take the case to court and let's hopefully have a successful prosecution and get some results for the officer because that's hugely impactful on them, be it a return to work the week later, the next month. Some don't come back to work because that impact is huge. Members of the public might witness two, three or four traumatic accounts in their lifetime. Police officers witness that every single day and then when they are themselves assaulted, it makes it worse. So Op Hampshire for me is it's one of my cornerstones that at every opportunity I will try to speak out and speak up for the Op Hampshire and the process because officers need to be protected. You talked also about increasing confidence in policing. How can the Police Federation and you in particular play a role in that because that clearly has been shaken, public confidence has been shaken by recent events over the past 18 months. It has. For me, it goes back to simple communication. Let's explain to the membership what we do, what our value is. The subscription fees that they pay is a certain amount, £23.58. We need to explain what we do with that money. In the last year alone, we've spent £13.5 million in criminal claims, in civil claims. That's an awful lot of membership money. We have to explain there's a cost to doing business. To run 43 forces with chairs, secretaries and employee staff, to do that costs money. We have an in-house legal team which, by employing them directly, has saved us a fortune. Again, 
explain that to the people. We have a, a fantastic communications team which has to do with all the media requests, all our drives, our campaigns to put things out there. Again, it costs money to do that. And I don't think it's ever really been explained to membership that if you take down and break down what they pay, here's what it goes for, that's really important and hopefully they will understand that and go, I can now see the benefit of what we pay our money. And then going forward, listen to the membership. We've got a survey taking place today at our own conference asking for honest feedback about what do we need to change. That's the first time that's been done that I'm aware of. We've never done it before. We've done a recent poll. We've had 57,000 results from the membership across the country, which is going to give us some really, really good data about pay conditions and other questions. Again, engage with the membership, see what we get back, listen, understand, review, and feed it back. So we are listening, and here's what we're going to try our very best to do to achieve for you, and let's see where it takes us. But in terms of public confidence, which has been shaken, how can you and the Police Federation make some improvements on that? For me, again, it goes back to speaking to chief constables, working with the government, bringing on our own protective learning time to say we are listening. If there's a, a need to change, we absolutely want to, to create confidence in policing. Let's talk to our communities in a better way than we have them before. Let's break down some of those barriers which have clearly gone up. Explanations, I think, go a long way to helping the public understand what we do. Open days, let officers come and see officer safety training. Let them come and see firearms training. Put them into a misconduct meeting so you understand the things that we say in defence of our colleagues. Show them the two binders that we work to in regulation determinations. I would challenge anybody outside of policing to live by that code, the regulations, the code of ethics. It's huge. Knowledge is power. Power then helps people to understand where we come from. And I think that will go a big way to resetting some of the confidence issues we've had. It's not everything, but it's a start. And we play an important part in helping reset that uh, narrative. Do some of the cases that we've heard about over the past couple of years, has some of that, do you recognise some of that culture, some of those cultural problems, some of those issues, the Charing Cross report, the WhatsApp messages, etc.? Do you recognise some of that, or is that come as a complete bolt out of the blue for you? It's things that you hear of, and you hope that your colleagues never ever put you in that situation where you have to report it. And if you do, you stand up and be counted, because it's the right thing to do. Um, I mentioned in my speech we're going to talk about misogyny. We have a really good session tomorrow. And for me, it's about acting, challenging, reporting with education. It's, it's always sad when people have to stand up to go, I've been the victim of some form of bullying in the workplace. Unacceptable. We cannot condone it. And it must be consigned to the past so we can move forward and make the workplace truly representative. Everybody that comes into policing so they can feel safe. It's hard enough dealing with the criminals out there. It shouldn't be as difficult working inside. So... There is lots to do. We are part of that process and we're there to work with anybody that wants to make policing better. Steve Hanson, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us on Policing TV and the very best of luck uh, as Chair of the Police Federation. Thank you. Thank you, Danny.